0: This life-changing message comes to you from Church of the Harvest. It's our prayer that this message will inspire your life and bring hope to your future. We're gonna, I am going to jump right on in because I have quite a bit that I want, to, uh, I want to cover today. But again, if you're a guest with us, thank you for, for being here. Thank you for coming to Harvest this morning. Um, we are just a part of the body of Christ. We, we just, just like every other church family that gathers together, we are a church family that we gather together. We, the Lord has brought us together, and we have recognized that we're stronger together than we are individually. Amen. We each share strengths and weaknesses, and we compensate for those. And thank goodness the Lord is in the middle of it all. He's one that brought us together so that we could accomplish His purposes in the earth. And so we thank you so much for being here. We're just a small expression of the body of Christ. We love God, and because of that, we love people. And we serve the world as the hands and feet of Jesus. If you're part of the Heart of the Harvest family, what is our vision? Our vision is to make, grow, and equip followers of Jesus to fulfill their God-given purpose in life. And how do we do that? Now that my phone is... Bringing community discipleship and outreach. Sorry, guys. My phone started ringing all of a sudden. I uh, guess that needs to be off, huh? So, so anyway, community discipleship and outreach without a phone interrupting. That is, uh, that is, how, we, that is how we accomplish that. Um, as I said earlier, I, one of, I, this is what the Lord has really put on my heart. One of the primary metrics for, for, for us looking and analyzing and seeing whether or not we're fulfilling that uh, purpose that God has given us is to see how many people are coming to Jesus What impact are you making on your environment for Jesus? Guys, it's all about us and what God has called us to do individually, right? We always thought it was about the pastor or the evangelist or whoever to go reach people for Jesus. Somebody say, it's my job. job. Each of us have responsibility, amen? That's why we're here. And so over the last few months, we've been discussing our identity. If we're going to be the hands and feet of Jesus in the earth, we need to understand who we are we got to understand the responsibility we've been given as Christ followers. What is a Christ follower? A Christ follower is somebody who has repented and turned from their old life, surrendered their life to Jesus, and made him Lord, right? And things in the world seem to be rapidly changing today. But guys, we have a huge benefit as part of God's kingdom. He never changes. And the Word of God never changes. It's always faithful and we can always count on it regardless of what happens in this world, regardless of what happens in our life, right? And so I'm glad to know that the Word of God has the answers to every question we have in this life and even answers to every doubt that goes through our minds. How many of you have struggled with doubt at different points in your life? But the Word of God has the answer to all of it. So we're going through and we're looking in our identity and our responsibility, we've been talking about the practicalities of the Christian life, what it means to be a follower of Jesus. So several weeks ago, we started the Sermon on the Mount, and we started talking about how this is the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. We're still in Matthew chapter 5. And in Matthew chapter 5, the crowds are starting to recognize this new guy, this guy, Jesus. They're starting to gather whenever he comes out. And so uh, he goes up on this hillside. He takes the disciples with him. They gather around, and he begins to speak to them, right? And so the Sermon on the Mount, we see some of his first words there as he's teaching to them. And, And so his teaching was very practical, and it was also very applicable. But guys, we are his disciples as well. Right now, we are gathered around his feet. Hopefully, during the week in your own time, you gather around the feet of Jesus and you listen to what he's saying. And so his words, even though it was 2,000 years ago when we see these recorded, they're very applicable and practical for us today where we live in our life. So we're still in Matthew chapter 5. We've discussed the Beatitudes. We talked about being salt and light. talked about the importance of not only being a hearer of the word, but being a doer of the word. Being a hearer is no good if we're not a doer, Right? We talked about how to be great in the kingdom of God. We, we, and, and, and from that, we started talking about how this idea that not only our actions, but even our thoughts declare our devotion to God or lack thereof, right? And Jesus starts getting to the heart of the matter about halfway through chapter five, and he starts shining a light on what's in our hearts. Jesus says, you think you've kept the law because you, have, you haven't violated the sixth commandment that said you shall not murder. But I'm telling you, if you've got hatred in your heart towards somebody, you're already guilty of murder. All of a sudden, everybody's going, what? And he says, you think, because, you think you've kept the law because you haven't violated the seventh commandment that says don't commit adultery. But I tell you, if you've looked upon a woman with lust, you've already committed adultery. Guilty. Anybody in here guilty? <laughs> So last week I gave you two things. I told you the root of outward sin is always found inward. What's inside, what comes out is just evidence of what's already inside, right? What's already been in there and already been brewing and stewing, right? Eventually it comes out and it's manifested um, in in the outside. And then the last thing I told you was we must deal with inward sin before it becomes outward sin. And Jesus addresses how you do this. How do you do it? He says by plucking out your eye and cutting off your hands. And does he mean that literally? Thank God, no. Thank you, Jesus. I don't care to pluck my eye out or cut my hands off. We talked about that a little bit. But he is very clear that the weapons of our, our warfare are not carnal, right? They're not fleshly. They're not of this world. But they are powerful, To cast down all those inward thoughts and all those temptations and those things that exalt themselves against higher than the word of God. And so we've got to be careful and we've got to cast those things down, those inward thoughts, those things on the inside before they manifest on the outside. Because by the time they manifest on the outside, they're becoming very destructive, right? They're impacting many more people. It was still sin in our heart, but now we're involving others in that sin as well. So, as I've said the last few weeks, Jesus had a way of cutting to the heart, didn't he? Cutting to the heart of the matter when he was speaking. He didn't get caught up in the drama and all the what ifs. Man, he'd go straight to the heart with it. It was never about the letter of the law. It was about the spirit of the law. It was about the heart, the heart of the law. And that's what Jesus is shining a light on. And really, this is the theme of the rest of chapter 5. And I'm going to try to finish it today. So, you guys put on your... Seat belt, and uh, we're going to uh, we're gonna try to, to run on through this and, and hit the rest of this right quick. Because like I say, it all kind of falls under this common theme through the rest of chapter 5. And so we are right now in Matthew chapter 5, verse 33. So if you've got your Bible, you can turn to that. You can look in the YouVersion Bible app. We also have all the notes already loaded in there. If you go to more and hit events, you'll see um, our notes for today listed in there on your mobile device. So we are in Matthew chapter 5, verse 33. And Jesus begins and he says... And you have heard it said, you've heard it was said to those of old. Now, right there. I talked about this last week. When he said, when when Jesus speaks to them and says, and you heard it said, what's he referring to? He's referring to the old covenant. He's referring to the law, right? You've heard it said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oaths to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. So let's just leave that verse up there for a minute. It says, you've heard it said, you shall not swear falsely. The the King James Version actually says, do not forswear yourself. Sounds like a King James word, doesn't it? Forswear. What does forswear mean? It's not talking about swearing and cursing, though we should not be swearing and cursing as followers of Christ anyway. But that's not what it's talking about here. It's referring to oaths and vows. So to forswear yourself was to try to bring something bigger into the conversation, something bigger into, your, into whatever it is you're swearing, to whatever it is you're making a vow on, you're trying to bring something else into. It. And I'm going to show you an example of that for a minute. When you make a swear or, or, or you swear or you vow by something, you're, you're actually communicating that your word is not enough. When you swear by something, you're communicating that your word is not adequate. And so that's more what Jesus is addressing here. So, you know, what, when, we, when we do that, we're trying to prop ourself up. We're trying to prop our word up. We're trying to prop our vow up. Many times because it's weak or we're insecure in it, in our argument, whatever it may be. And so what do we do? We add something to our vow. We add something to it. And, and guys, we, we, we do it all the time. We do it all the time. It's kind of like, Let me give you a church example, okay? It's kind of like for us in leadership. When somebody comes to us with a a gripe and they go, you know, pastor, I just don't like those new communion elements that y'all are using. I don't like them and I don't think they are biblically approved. And others think so as well, but I can't say who. What did you just do? You just propped up your gripe, your complaint, right? By bringing others in to the conversation, right? You get what I'm saying? So what is Jesus saying in verse 34? He says, but I say to you, do not swear at all. So he's talking about about swearing by things, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne. So back in the day, they would say, as heaven is above me, I swear on my word. Jesus is saying, why why you need to swear on heaven? Right? Today, guys, we, we do the same thing. Promise that people will say, I promise, I swear to God. Do you really now? What, what are you going to do exactly if you can't keep that word once you've sworn to God? What do you do with that? In verse 35, he says, don't swear by the earth. In Jesus' day, they would swear by the earth. They would say, as the earth is below me, I swear to keep my word. What does that do? He says, Jesus says, don't swear by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. King with a capital K, right? They would swear by the city of Jerusalem because this is where the Messiah was to come and to rule and to reign in his kingdom. They would go on, it would go so far, they would swear by their head. Look at the next verse, verse 36. Jesus says, nor shall you swear by your head, because you can't make one hair white or black. Your kids might make one of your hairs white or black. (laughs) No, guys, I know it kind of seems weird to think about, about swearing on heaven or swearing on the earth or swearing by God or swearing on Jerusalem or swearing by your head. But these are things that were bigger, and they were trying to prop their word up. Again, what are you going to do if you can't keep that vow that you just made, that thing you just swore on? I know it sounds silly, but what did we used to say as kids? I swear, cross my heart and hope to die. Right? You swore on your heart. What are you going to do if you can't keep it? Something happens. Well, I'm 99% positive. You swore on your heart. You better give it to me. No, I'm just kidding. So we're not, if we're not supposed to make vows like this, what are we supposed to do? So Jesus says it. Guys, I don't have points today. We, like I say, we're knocking out chapter 5. We're just going verse by verse, okay? Verse 37. So, Jesus says, so what are we to do? Jesus says, but let your yes be yes and your no be no. For whatever is more than these is from the evil one. Look at it from the Passion Translation. He says, a simple yes or no will suffice. Anything beyond that springs from a deceiver. Somebody who comes to you and they're having to prop their vow up, their promise, their swear with all kinds of stuff. Why is their word not enough? He's saying, when you say yes, you mean yes. And when you say no, you mean no. Next time you start to say yes, you start to say, I swear to God, you better stop. And remember that that comes from the deceiver. It's what we just read, right? We have the Holy Spirit within us and we are the body of Christ. Our character and our words should be enough to keep us from making silly statements like these. It is the Holy Spirit that enables us to be a person whose yes is yes and no is no. It's because of him that we're able to do it. So people say, well, what about when I go to court and I'm told to put my hand on the Bible and swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God. Guys, that's a different situation. You're not doing it for yourself. Does that make sense? You're not doing it for your benefit. Now, I don't need to put my hand on the Bible because I'm going to tell the truth Anyway. But if it's what my authority is requiring of me in that moment, sorry, wrong hand. No, raise your right hand, left hand. I've never done it. Thank goodness. Here's the reality about that anyway, guys. Please don't stone me for saying this. Placing your hand on that Bible, it's simply a book anyway. Okay? It's just a book. Yes, I know the Bible is the word of God, but the physical book in and of itself is simply made from wood, right? I had somebody freak out at me. We were still on Ross Road, the building on Ross Road. I had somebody freak out on me one time. I was standing on the floor. They came and talked to me, and I dropped my Bible on the stage. It was like, "Ah! you need to respect the word of God. I was like, Lord have mercy. What just happened? Anyway, I'm not telling the truth because my hand is on that book. I'm telling the truth because of who my father is, right? Yes, that book contains the recorded words of God, and I've got 20 more of them at home. And it is precious. But that's not why I tell the truth, because I've got my hand sitting on the book. I tell the truth because he's my father, right? The Holy Spirit rules my life. I have the character of my Father. So guys, God's word is always faithful to us. His promises are always yes and amen. And God needs nothing to ever prop up his word. Ever, right? In the same way, we should be people of honor and character. If we say we're going to do something, we should absolutely do it. If we say we're going to be somewhere, we're there and we're there on time. Because that's the character of our Father. Amen? Amen? So, let me see. Next verse, where are we at? Oh, I I was going to mention too that we should be known. You want to know whether or not you're a person of character? The people around you know. Are you known for being a person of your word? Are you known for following through and doing what you said you would do? Are you known for being where you say you're going to be and being there on time? These are issues at the heart that Jesus is shining a light on. And so as we continue... As we continue on, we're going into verse thirty-eight next. And guys, as we go into verse thirty-eight, even unbelievers, even unbelievers know the terms "an eye for an eye," right? They know that, or they know the term "turn the other cheek." A lot of times, unbelievers quote that to Christians, "Aren't you supposed to turn the other cheek? An eye for an eye, brother? Don't you know what I'm saying?" We hear these things, but these verses are often quoted out of context, and many people don't even understand what they really mean. For a Christian that is trying to walk in love, it's important that we know when to turn the other cheek and what this means. So the next verse, Jesus says it in in Matthew chapter 5, verse 38, and you've heard it said. What's he referring to again? The law. So there's truth in it. This is truth. You've heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a a tooth. Now, This was written in Old Testament law. Where it was written, is actually found three times in Scripture. It's found in uh, Exodus chapter 21, verse 24, uh, Leviticus 24, 20, and Deuteronomy 19, 21, where it says, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But guys, if you look at these passages, if you look at where it says this, it wasn't really written to us. As a matter of fact, it wasn't really even written to the Jewish people. It was written to somebody very specific when you look at these places in Scripture. It was written for judges. It was written for judges who were settling disputes and making judgments. God was giving them wisdom and instruction on how to make judgments. Okay? So that doesn't mean that something happens and your neighbor, you know, does something and knocks your tooth out. doesn't mean you have the right to go knock out your neighbor's tooth. Okay? It's not the way it works. It's not what Jesus is saying. So back in that day, the judicial system was much simpler than it is today. (laughs) Much simpler. Uh, It basically worked like this. If the defendant comes in before the judge and it knocked out somebody's tooth, he would get his tooth knocked out. Okay? Court moved very quickly. It was very simple. There was no weeks and months of testimony and and evidence and details, right? The judge would say, "Uh, sir, did you punch his eye out? Well, yes, sir. Yes, I did. All right. You two will get your eye punched out. Next case. Deliver him over to the eye punchers, right? It's like, bam, it's over. (laughs) So the statement, eye for eye and tooth for tooth, wasn't really directed directly to the people of of Israel. It was written to their judges that were making judgments, okay? Um, And so when we look at this, like I say, they were, as I talked about last week, they were beginning to take all these laws. They weren't just beginning to. They had been for a long time taking the laws out of context. And they were adding to them to mean whatever they wanted to so that they could get whatever they wanted, know I talked last week about how they stretched the terms for divorce and, and everything else. They were doing this with all the law. And that's what had happened here. They thought if somebody came and did something evil to them, they had every right to be able to go back and to get revenge. And that's what Jesus is saying. No, don't think so. It's not the way it works. So Jesus continues. He said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. And then he says in verse 39, but I tell you, now look at this. I tell you not to resist an evil person. Is that shocking to anybody? Do not resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other cheek to him as well. I would present to you that he's, he's speaking kind of to a particular person again. I believe that Jesus is speaking here to the person whose heart is surrendered to him and He's speaking to the person that is being persecuted for righteousness' sake. As we have seen in the rest of this chapter, as we saw through the Beatitudes, he's talking about those who are persecuted, who are being attacked for the sake of Jesus. And that's a different matter. So let me sort this out for just a minute. So as we look at it, um, you know, a, a lot of people today, a lot of people. Um, you know, believe, or they even teach that to turn the other cheek—that it means that we are to be a spineless, weak people in the earth today. That we should let the world walk all over us; that they should be able to take our rights and what we have worked for, and our families and everything else, and that we're supposed to sit by and grin. Well, praise the Lord! Thank you, Jesus. They stole my car, and they made false accusations against me, and I lost my job, and well, hallelujah. It's not what Jesus is saying. Aren't you glad? It's not what it's about. It's not what he's saying. I I don't, but I, I will say this. I personally don't believe that any Christian ever has the right to get revenge. Like, ever. Ever. I don't care what they said to your mom about your mama. There's never the right to get revenge. Now, we have been given certain rights as Americans, and it doesn't mean you can't stand up. Okay? I'll, I'll, let me address it further. Because in this, like I say, I believe in this, though, that Jesus is talking about our stand for the gospel. Remember the last beatitude in, in, uh, chapter verse 11? He says, blessed are you, blessed are you, when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Again, he's talking about for righteousness sake, right? So he's saying, consider yourself blessed when you're hated, when you're done wrong, when you're lied about, when you're persecuted for your faith. Okay? So when these things happen, what do we do? Somebody comes and persecutes you for your faith. They punch your eye out. What do you do? Punch back, start yelling, yell louder. Hit him with your car? What do you do? Jesus said, consider yourself blessed. I would present to you, if you're being persecuted for righteousness sake, you're probably doing something right. If you yell, punch, if you get revenge, you're probably not doing something right. Look at verse 39 again. He says, I tell you, do not resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Do not resist an evil person. So does that mean when somebody busts into your home, starts attacking your family and stealing your stuff? I don't resist. Go for it, bro. Take it. Take my stuff. My safe is right over there. There's my daughter. All yours. No, of course not. So when he says to resist an evil person, that's not what he's talking about. Guys, he's talking about for righteousness' sake. When when you're attacked for righteousness' sake, guys, it's the enemy attacking you through a person. And remember, the weapons of our warfare aren't carnal. They're not of this world. And I would present the enemy's not even necessarily just attacking you. He's attacking Jesus and you. We've got to change our perspective and the way that we're looking at things. So using your fist or yelling louder is not going to solve anything. It's not how we're called to fight. Are we called to fight? Yes, we are. He didn't give us spiritual weapons for nothing. Right? So when the enemy comes against you for righteousness sake, he slaps you on the cheek, whatever that may look like, for being a disciple of Jesus and a godly witness Jesus is saying, turn the other cheek. You're not making yourself a punching bag for the world when you do that. You're not asking for a a beating. You're saying, bring it on, Satan. You will not get me down. I choose to rejoice. I won't stop no matter what you bring my way. I'm going harder after him than ever. So if it takes another slap on the other side, bring it on. So I'm not stopping. Uh, the example I thought of this was y'all remember um, uh, Oh Acts chapter four or five when when the apostles are first brought in, it's, they've experienced the day of Pentecost, all this stuff. The apostles are brought in, they're brought in. I think it was initially Peter and John are brought in before the high council, right? And they're questioned, and they're told to stop teaching in the name of Jesus, and they're released. Confrontation over. <laughs> No, they just got in trouble. That would have been a little slap on the cheek, right? What did they do? They left and started preaching in the name of Jesus. Did they know this was going to cause issues? Yeah, absolutely. So a couple days later, they're arrested again. And they're thrown into prison. An angel comes that night and helps them to escape. Now you would have thought they would have ran from town and headed on to the next place. No, what does the Angel say? Um, I'm getting out of prison here, but I want you to go right back into the temple and start preaching in the name of Jesus. <laughs> Do you think they thought for one moment this was going to go well? <laughs> they weren't dumb guys. They knew this was going to go pretty badly with the high council, with the priests, with the Pharisees, with the Sadducees. They knew it, and they obeyed God. They walked right into the temple where they got arrested before and they started preaching in the name of Jesus again. What happens? That day, that, that, that next day, they're preaching in the temple. The leaders recognize, how did they get out of prison? Go arrest them again. They bring them in arrest them. This time they beat them and they flog them. And they tell them <laughs> to stop preaching in the name of Jesus. And they release them again. Guys, they're turning all kinds of cheeks. <laughs> you see it? <laughs> I was not dancing. Um, guys, look at in, in Acts chapter 5, and verse 41, it says, and what did they do? They left rejoicing. Isn't that what Jesus had told them to do? They left rejoicing that God had counted them worthy of suffering, suffering and being disgraced for the name of Jesus. And what does the verse say next? It says every day after that. This is what it says. Every day after that in the temple from home to hunt from the temple and from home to home they continued to preach and teach that Jesus was the Messiah. That's turning the other cheek, guys. By the way, they were also very respectful the entire time. They were very honoring of the leaders, but they recognized there was an authority over them that they could not disobey. Right? Moving on. Verse 40, Jesus continues in the same vein. He says in verse 40, if anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, then let them have your cloak also. That sounds very backwards from what the world says, right? The Passion Translation says this. It says, if someone is determined to sue you for your coat, give him the shirt off your back as a gift in in return. In return, he's trying to sue me for my cloak. (laughs) Why am I giving them a gift in return, right? Again, guys, I don't believe this is talking about cases in the natural. It doesn't mean that we have to be spineless and weak. I believe this, again, is talking about being sued for righteousness' sake. There are Christians, there are plenty of Christians out there that don't mind at all hauling somebody off to court. And that's not the way it should be. They're always trying to find ways to. But Jesus says, when they sue you for one thing, Give them something better. Give them more than they asked for. Why? When persecuted for Jesus, guys, we're not supposed to respond with anger and hatred and violence. Yelling is not the way we respond. We respond in love. And let me tell you what. Responding in love will accomplish far more than any absolutely any attempt that you could ever make in the natural world. To respond in the flesh, and being an angry response will only fuel the fire. But responding in love, that just messes people up, <laughs> right? Anybody ever done something to you, and you and they're yelling and mad and angry, and you just you just respond in love, and and a lot of times, a lot of times it'll shut them down. They don't know what to say next. They're waiting on you to come back, and you're not giving them anything but love. It's like no. They'll be confused and unsure what to do next. And you know what else? You might just win them for Jesus. You certainly have a much better chance than you did responding out of anger. Right? Some Christians think, and this has been taught, that this passage means that you should never go to court for any reason. Guys, I don't believe that's scriptural at all. I don't believe that's what it's saying at all. Um, again, I, I think you know, it's, it's talking about being sued or going to court for the gospel. And by the way, 1 Corinthians 6 does tell us that court is not the place for followers of Jesus to settle disputes. The Bible is very clear on how followers of Jesus, all of us in the family of God together, how we are supposed to handle disputes together. We have not done a real good job of it. We need to, we, we need to teach on this. That might be something that we do in the future coming up. How do we handle issues with our brother, our sister, and the Lord? Because we're not, supposed to be, we're not supposed to be hauling them off the court. There are ways that we're supposed to deal with this when our hearts are surrendered to the Lord. But sometimes somebody's not willing to communicate as part. They're not willing to, they're not willing to cooperate and operate according to, uh, to God's word as part of the family of God. But, uh, but understand, when things happen not pertaining to the gospel, as Americans, there are laws in place to protect us. How many of you are thankful for that? That's part of what laws are for. That's why they are, they've been put into place and we can use them. Romans 13 tells us the government was set up by God and it is there to help us in natural cases. So as an American Christian, God does not want you being walked all over and taken advantage of, but you can still walk in love. Amen? So if somebody comes, you're parked in a parking lot, and somebody comes and hits your car and causes damage to your car and refuses to take responsibility, you don't just have to go, oh, well, you know, and, and walk away from it, right? You call 911. Somebody's hit my car right? Can you come help me, please? You get your insurance company on the phone, right? You don't go punching. You don't go yelling and cursing. But you do have a right to stand up for yourself in the natural. Amen? I'm glad that we were born into a nation where certain laws been put in place to protect us and our property in physical situations. I'll, I'll give you a quick example of that. Um, uh, a number of years ago, uh, we were um, I was in the I was in the church van. How many of you remember our old church van? Yeah. Um, I was in the church van. We were uh, going to we do a youth activity, actually. And there were a few of us. We were headed out. Uh, Mike Stewart, Jr., you, you know Mike Stewart. We were headed out to his dad's property in Somerville. We were going to do a big youth bonfire. Was anybody at that youth bonfire? Were you at that bonfire? That was years ago. We were going to do a big bonfire out there in a week or two. And so we were headed out that direction, out towards Somerville. And so we were on... Um, we were on Highway 57, Poplar. We had just gone through where 385 or 269 or whatever the numbers are now, um, right where that is, headed, headed, right coming right up on Piperton. Y'all know where I'm talking about? Y'all know where Cousins Gas Station is now, right there in Piperton on that corner? At that time, there was nothing there. Y'all, y'all remember that? I mean, I think there was a little building on, on one corner, on the northwest corner. That's all there was, maybe a little gas station or something like that. But if you guys remember back then, Highway 57, it was just a two-lane state highway, Right? Traffic going one way, traffic going the other direction. Two lanes. It was country. So I'm shooting along there and about to hit that intersection where the Cousins gas station is now. About to shoot right through there. And at that point, you know, there's a crossroad. Now, there was no four-way stop. Those on Highway 57 had the right-of-way. People coming the other direction, you know, had to stop and yield. And so I'm coming up on that intersection, and those two lanes split, and there's a turn lane in the middle, right, so people could turn off to these other streets. So I'm shooting down there. The speed limit had just gone up to 55 miles an hour right there. I would increased speed. I'm doing about, doing about 55, and there's a truck sitting in the turn lane. It pulls up. It's sitting in the turn lane about to take a left turn, right? So I'm about to shoot right by him, doing 55 miles an hour, and he suddenly takes a right turn out of the left turn lane in front of me. I didn't have time to stop. I hit the brakes, locked them, laying out rubber on the road. I shot off the road because I couldn't swerve off to the left. I'm having to swerve to the right, and I still clipped him. I I hit him pretty good. Um, But I hit the side of his vehicle near the back. I did not hit the back of his vehicle. I hit the side of his vehicle. So we were kind of shaking. we get out of the van, go over there. guy doesn't get out, doesn't acknowledge us. Well, I just had my phone, 911. And uh, 10, 15 minutes later, the uh, sheriff's department shows up, right? So sheriff's, uh, the sheriff's deputy shows up, and he, he gets out of the car. And I, I go over, and I go to approach him. And he like, goes like this, and he goes, I'll get to you. Yes, sir. Okay, all right. Remember, this is a state of Tennessee truck that I had hit. He walks right over to this guy and, like, shakes hands, and they pat each other on the shoulder, and they start talking and laughing, and I was like, oh, man. <laughs> oh, man. <Dead> gummit. <laughs> right? <laughs> and so uh, they talk, and five, ten minutes goes by, and he's, and the guy's saying stuff, and he's pointing at me, and he's pointing at the road and all this stuff. And, and I'm like, okay. So he finally, the deputy comes over and goes, son, you done messed up, haven't you? I was like, uh, I don't know. Uh, he goes, "Well, you you sure nailed them, didn't you?" I said, "Well, I mean, yes, sir." And actually, I was I was just kind of stunned. I, I wasn't I wasn't angry. It wasn't disrespectful at all. I, I was just I was just kind of shocked at, at the attitude. I was like, "What?" And I'm thinking, "What did this guy tell him?" And um, he said, uh, uh, "Clearly, you weren't paying attention to the road." I said, "Sir," and, and he said way I see it, you were probably flying down the road. You didn't see him when he hit his brakes to take that right turn, and so you just plowed into him. I said, sir, he was in the left turn lane. He took a right in front of me. And he goes, what are you talking about? He goes, there's no evidence of that. I said, how did I hit the side of his vehicle? Wouldn't I have hit the back? And he goes, oh, you probably just swerved off the road far enough to avoid hitting the back of them that you hit the side. And then he walked away. And I was like, what is happening right now? Now, I, got, I went over in the car because we were getting ready to go do something. We were trying to figure out for this youth activity what we were going to do. And I had a digital camera on me. It was before smartphones. Had a digital camera on me. So I just went out and I was like, you know, and I had my insurance guy on the phone. And I just started taking pictures. I went out to the road and I took pictures of the skid marks. I took pictures all the way around the van. I took pictures of my van in relation to his vehicle. And, I, and, I, and while he's standing there, the, the deputy's standing there with the guy. I walked all around that vehicle and I took pictures of it and everything. And they're just, they're just kind of watching me, you know. And, and I said And I stopped there and I said, sir, I've got two other guys in the van who can co- corro- collaborate my, collaborate my, and he interrupts me and goes, what you've got in there is two buddies who are going to say whatever you want them to say. I was like, okay, <laughs> back to the van, <laughs> right? I continued taking pictures and got my insurance guy on the phone and uh, they, they stood there forever. And I finally walked back over and I, I said, sir, I, um, I, I'm going to need a copy of that police report and stuff. My insurance company's requesting it for the claim I'm making. He's like, I'll be with you in a minute. A few minutes later, he came up to the van, and I did not get a citation. And our insurance company deemed that I wasn't responsible in any way and took care of collecting the damages, okay? Guys, we don't roll over in the natural when things happen. We're not called to be weak and spineless. We, we can stand up for righteousness, right? We've been given rights by God, as Americans, and so we can stand up for those. All right, moving on. Um, oh, I was going to say in that that you know I was willing to take a stand and legally had every right to, and it, it didn't ever it didn't really have anything to do with my with my stand for the gospel. They wanted to pin the blame on me, but I, I wasn't going to roll over and take the take the blame for it. But I, I, but I was very respectful the entire time, and so there's a difference between natural conflict and conflict when it comes to. Um, spiritual matters and comes to taking a stand for righteousness sake so uh, then verse 41 Jesus goes on he says and whoever compels you to go a mile go with him too now I've mentioned this before so I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on it but you guys know that that back in that time uh, when Jesus is, is teaching this they were under the rule of the Roman Empire right and the Romans could care less about the Jews or their God right and so all the romans ever really did was take advantage of the jews. so so according to jewish law i'm sorry according to roman law uh, which the jews were subject to, right? they were being ruled by the romans, they were subject to roman law even though they were pagans. if a roman soldier was walking and got tired, he could grab anybody in the empire that was not roman and make them carry their things for 1 mile. don't you think they loved that? It didn't matter where you were going or what you were doing. If a Roman soldier comes by and says, I'm tired, you're carrying my stuff for the next mile. But sir, I'm on the way to the grocery store. Carry my stuff, right? Can't imagine this made the Jews like them very much. They were probably cursing and complaining for that whole mile in their head, right? But they knew they had to do it. They had to obey. Probably made them hate the romans all the more let me let me show you an example of this that you might not have ever seen before you guys know this example in matthew 27 verse 31 and 32 talking about jesus when they had mocked him they took off the robe and they put his own clothes on him and led him away to be crucified what's verse 32 say and now as they came out they found a man of cyrene what's his name simon by name and him they compelled to bear the cross the soldiers had every right legally to make this guy pick up Jesus's cross and carry it okay other verses say that other verses translate it and say they forced him he didn't he could not decline right so they compelled him to carry the cross so back to what Jesus is saying whoever compels you to to go a mile go with them too so just imagine a roman soldier coming up to you and throwing his stuff at your feet and saying pick it up and carry it no matter where you were going or what you were doing, your plans just changed. You're walking a mile with all this stuff on your back. He could have made fun of you. He could have mocked you because of the power that he has over you and the fact that you don't have a choice in the matter. And, but what Jesus is saying here, think about this. You come to the end of that mile, and most Jews would have thrown that stuff back at his feet. Jesus is saying instead, look at him and say, hey, you want me to carry it one more? That changes things. Can you imagine the Roman soldier? What? Why would you even do that? Right? That's why Romans 2.4 says it's the goodness of God that leads people to repentance. Right? You want to be a witness? Be a servant. I, I, I. Hellfire and brimstone teachings won't win nearly as many people as love will. You might get a few. God's love will win the world. Walk in love and respect from those that are different from you. Give of yourself and serve them. Show them the goodness of God. And then in verse 42, Jesus says, Give to him who asks you, and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. And guys, to me, this is just another example of being a witness, uh, being a witness for Jesus. Some people have taught that Jesus is saying here that it's wrong to lend or borrow. I don't believe that's right, guys. That's not, that's not, that's not right. And that wasn't the issue here. He's saying that if somebody's in need and needs to borrow something and you've got it to share, share it with them, Right? And he's not saying, give away everything you have. Some people think Christians gotta be poor and give away everything they got. No, no, I mean, if you look at it, it's 1 Timothy that says, if you don't provide for your family, you're worse than an unbeliever. He's not saying that at all. But when able, lend to those around you. Lend to those in need. Next, Jesus says in verse 43, and you've heard it said, Remember, again, you've heard it said, this is Old Testament law, right? You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, there's a problem with this. I'm going to show it to you. Now, he started it with, you've heard it said, so he is talking about a law in the Old Testament. But again, it's been twisted. Because nowhere in the law does it say, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. It doesn't say it. If you look at it, it comes from Leviticus 19.18. And the statement, you've heard Jesus say it before. The statement that is said in Leviticus 19.18 is love your neighbor as yourself. The whole hate your enemies thing, is that still up there? Let's keep that verse up there for just a minute if you would. That whole hate your enemies thing, again, had been added to the word, to the law. They made, what they did is they made a mistake in the way that they were defining neighbor. They were going, oh, they're thinking, Mr. Rogers, my neighbor is my friend, right? So I'm supposed to love my friends. Well, Jesus addresses that in a minute too, because that's easy to do, right? They were saying, love your friends. But here's the problem. Your neighbor can be your enemy. Your neighbor can dislike you a lot. Have you ever been there, had a a neighbor that didn't seem to care for you a whole lot? They're lovely to live next to. Great people, right? It happens. And this is what they had been taught. So here's what he says. Uh, Because that's how he started it. You've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Verse 44. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven, for he makes the sun to rise on the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust. Now, to me, probably to most people, the most confusing part of this passage, I mean, we we don't love it. I mean, the whole bless those who curse you and do good to those who hate you. It's like it goes against the grain how we were raised in the world. But, But I think the part that doesn't always make sense is where it says to do these things, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, pray for those who use you and persecute you. It says that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. Guys, this doesn't mean you're going to hell if you don't always respond in love. Okay? We've always had those, the, we've all had those situations where our emotions and our flesh got a little too involved. And we didn't exactly bless those who cursed us and do good to those who hated us, right? This isn't talking about a matter of heaven and hell because this can't begin to determine whether or not you're born again anyway, right? We're born again because we accepted the lordship of Jesus through the grace of God. Plain and simple, right? So what we got to look at is we got to break this down a little bit. So the word that is translated sons here, some versions translate it child and some translate it sons, depending on how it's written in context. But it can be translated either way. But there's a difference. And a lot, of, like I say, a lot of translations, um, a lot of versions translate it sons. And the difference is a son is referring to a mature child. Okay? So... I believe what it's saying here is that when you love your enemies, when you do good to those who hate you, you pray for those who use you, you're growing in maturity as a son or daughter of your father. You're becoming like him. It's not about whether or not you're a child. If you're a Christ follower, if you are a Christ follower, then you are his child. It's about whether or not you're maturing and imitating your father, okay? So... An example I thought of that, you remember when when you were young and you thought your parents were a couple of fuddy-duddies? You wondered if they had any wisdom whatsoever. Did they understand? Did they know the world today? Have they lived at all? They can't possibly understand where I'm coming from. Remember those days? Isn't it amazing as you got older, those parents or those people who were Mother or father figures in life, the older you got, the more wise they seem to become. Uh-huh. Were they changing or were you changing? Do you not know? <laughs> you are changing, just so you know. It was you. They had more wisdom from you from the beginning. In most cases. It probably was you. You were young. You were lacking maturity and understanding. You didn't know what you were talking about, right? I think many times as believers, we know God's word, but we think we know better. We think, man, that was written a long time ago. They can't, they can't God can't possibly, they can't possibly be speaking to my situation where I'm at today times have changed it's a new day just like we did when we were young right of course things have changed have times changed yeah of course they have but God's word is eternal and God is the same yesterday today and forever and he's a good good father he never changes so it has to be us that changes not him right It has to be us. We have to be the one that changes and comes in line with him and with his word. He's not going to change what we can. And as we come into alignment with him, we'll start acting like him. We'll start imitating him. We'll start looking like him. And that's how maturity comes. And guys, aren't you glad that God is no respecter of persons? I love in there, you know, it talks about, you know, how he sends, you know, the sun and the rain, and, you know, to, to shine and fall on everyone. God loves all of humanity. And that should be the same with us. If, if they smack you because you're a Christian, if they slap you on the cheek, you keep loving. If they want to haul you off to court, you keep loving them. If they want you to go to a mile, go a mile, you go another, and you keep loving them. We can't let our love be partial. Amen? Couple ver- three verses left, guys, and we're done with chapter 5. Okay? Verse 46. Jesus says, For if you love those who love you, What reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? Guys, it's easy to love those that love us, right? That's pretty daggum simple. And most of you probably know about the tax collectors, but the tax collectors were considered the lowest of the lowlifes in Jewish society, right? Part of that was because they worked for the Romans, to take advantage of the Jews and they were Jewish right so they were seen as traitors so the way it worked with the tax collectors was Rome hired the tax collectors to collect um, I believe it was 20 percent of the income from every person in in the empire Uh, but in this case obviously we're talking about the Jews right so they hired the Jewish tax collectors to collect 20% of all income from every Jewish family and to send it back to Rome, right? So what did the tax collectors do who are already viewed as traitors? They collect, collected as much as they wanted. They, collected, they were known to collect 30 and 40% of your income. Can you see why they may have been hated? 30 to 40%. They made sure to send the 20% back to Rome because they were living at large and they wanted to be in good standing with Rome. So they sent the 20% back. But they had charged you 30 to 40%. And they kept the rest, right? So the tax collectors, oh, and by the way, they absolutely had the right to arrest you if you didn't pay whatever they asked. They, you didn't get a fair trial or anything else. If they arrested, they just said they're not willing to pay their taxes. So they're arrested and they're now an enemy of Rome. Bad news. That's not good for you, right? So people paid whatever those on tax collectors said to pay to keep the peace with Rome. So the tax collectors were rich. They lived in the nicest homes. But it was at, within the, at their family and friends' expense, right? So what's Jesus saying here? If you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Even the tax collectors do the same thing. He's saying, if you only love those that love you, you're no better than tax collectors. You're no better than an unbeliever. You're no better than those that you hate the most. Where's the character and the love of the Father in that, right? God's love is unconditional and sacrificial. Well, it's not unconditional. He still, people are still going to go to hell, right? But while we were yet sinners... Jesus died for us, right? Loving those who hate us, that's God's love, guys. Only his sons and daughters can do that. Two verses left, verse 47-48. And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Anybody greet anybody in here on this Sunday morning outside of the folks you normally greet? It's easy to greet the folks that are close to us, right? What's he going to say? Therefore, you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Well, that's a tough line to swallow, isn't it? Because how many of us can be perfect? Again, if you go back and look at it, the word perfect can be translated mature, guys. It's more referring to maturity. The whole issue and what Jesus has been talking about, especially this last half of Matthew chapter 5, it's about the matters of the heart. It's about maturity. Becoming a mature son or daughter is not a process. It doesn't happen overnight, does it? But we are to be imitators of our heavenly Father, God's love is unchanging. He gave everything for us while we were yet sinners. How many of you are glad for the free gift of salvation through Jesus? But why would we offer anything different to those around us? Jesus is cutting to the heart of the matter, isn't he? They did me wrong. Love them. They slapped me. Love them. They want to take advantage of me. Love them. Love them. Love them. Love them. That's the end of chapter five. Two more to go. It's going to be good though. It's going to be good. But guys, I love how Jesus gets to the heart of the matter and he's getting to the heart of the matter in your life too. Amen? His grace abounds and is readily, readily available to you right now. The question is, what's in your heart? That's what Jesus is shining a big, fat spotlight on. You're saying, I'm good. And he's going, got his little flashlight going, what about that? Right there, right there in your heart. What about that area right there? We all have areas we need to deal with, don't we? And that's a sign of maturity where we can say, yes, Lord, let's deal with it. Let's take care of it so I can look a little bit more like you and I can accomplish your purposes in my life. Amen? Amen. Let's stand up. Let me invite the worship team to come up as we, as we close out here. If you guys would bow your heads for me. This is Jesus' teaching that we've been talking about. It's his teaching to his followers, those that have surrendered their life to him. But if you're here today or watching online and you have not surrendered your life to Jesus, the Holy Spirit's tugging at your heart. And I implore you, don't wait another moment. God's love and his grace and his mercy is so ready to richly abound toward you. A lot of people stop and go, but, but, but I knew this and I do that and this is my past and this is where I came from and God is quick to forgive. As we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and not just forgive us, but he cleanses us from all unrighteousness. Guys, it's the greatest news in the history of the world and it's all because of Jesus. If you've never called on the name of Jesus, If You've never repented and turned from your own way of living and surrendered your life to the lordship of Jesus and chosen that you're gonna follow him all the days of your life. And guys, you're not part of the family. And let me say, it's not God's fault. He has gone to incredibly extraordinary means to make a way for you and for me. Don't wait another moment is the greatest decision you're making in your entire life. The Bible tells us <laughs> that basically we come to the end of ourselves. We recognize that we're lost in our sin. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The Bible is clear, and you know it within your heart. But we serve a God that forgives there was a price to pay for that sin in our lives. But Jesus came and he volunteered to pay it for you. So what do we do? We repent. We, 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 we turn. We, we, we ask God to forgive us for living for ourselves. We don't just ask him to forgive us. We, we, we turn away from our sin. We stop walking that direction and we choose to follow him. And we bow to his lordship. It's Romans, 9, Romans 9 and 10, 10, 9 and 10 says. We confess that Jesus is Lord of our life. How do we make that confession? We make it with our mouth and, then, and we make that confession every day for the rest of our life. And he will walk with you. And nothing will ever be the same again. And you'll actually have a purpose and make a difference in this world. And yes, the circumstances of life will come against you. But let me tell you, it's easy to face the world when you've got the Creator standing next to you. When He's got your back, when He's holding you. You'll always be confident that it's all gonna work together for your good. Every head bowed if that's you and you would say, I need to surrender to the Lordship of Jesus. It doesn't matter to me if you've ever prayed a prayer before or if you've gone to church every day of your life or whatever it may be. If you're not surrendered to the Lordship of Jesus, if that's you and you would say, I need Jesus to be Lord of my life today, I want you to lift your hand. If you're watching online, I encourage you here in just a moment, you can send us a message. Anybody in this place would say, I need Jesus. If you're watching online, the Holy Spirit may be doing a work. He, he is doing a work right where you're at right now. And encourage you to just bow your heart before him. We're going to briefly, we're going to say a prayer right quick. You don't have to repeat after me, you can say it in your own words because I want this to be personal between you and the Father. But if you mean these words with all your heart, the Bible says you become a new creation. And the sacrifice, the price that Jesus paid for your sin, you now take a hold of that. Everything that Jesus deserved, is now yours it's called the great exchange all the punishment all the things that you deserved he took it but you get everything that he deserved you become a son you become a daughter of the father let's pray together just pray something like this heavenly father I recognize I'm lost in my sin I'm dead in my sin but I thank you Jesus that you made a way you saw me lost and alone and you loved me you were moved with compassion toward me you came to this earth and you volunteered to take my place to pay for my punishment to take my judgment and to declare me free so Lord I repent of my sins. I'm sorry for living for myself. I'm sorry for thinking I knew what was best. And I recognize you for who you are. I recognize that you truly know what is best. So Jesus, I ask you to be Lord of my life. I'll follow you every day to the end. Never looking back. Use me to accomplish your purposes. Restore my purpose and what I was created for. I'll follow you to the end. Holy Spirit, fill me and empower me to be everything you called me to be. In Jesus' name. down.